Kindred Church is a Christian community gathering in Reno, Nevada. We employ a dialogical teaching style, but for the sake of privacy, we remove the participants' responses from the recording. If you'd like to join in on the conversation, we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about the church and for our service time, location, and virtual gathering options, visit kindredchurchreno.com. So we're going to start off a little differently today. Um, I'm going to take you on a quick field trip. Now, um, of course, what I wish is that this could be a Miss Frizzle situation and we had a magic school bus that could define all laws of time and space and logic and physics, but we are a startup church and so we don't have magic school bus, but we have slides. So we'll go ahead and put up uh, the first slide. So now... Dad, <laughs> spoiler alert, if you know the artist of this painting, zip it. Just for a moment, that's you, Dad. Um, rather, than, rather than talking about who the artist is or what we may or may not know about this art right now, I just want us to take a look at it and to, to shout out what we think it could mean or what we think is the, the feeling that we're getting from this painting. What I ideas? <laughs> Your child did it. That's fantastic. What else? Chaos. Winter. Chaos. Messy. Excellent. Messy. All right. What else? My week last week. Your week last week. <laughs> a lot of us can probably attest to that very thing. Um, let's go ahead and take a look at the next one. All right. Believe it or not, this is a different one. <laughs> what do you think this one means? More chaos. More chaos. <laughs> uh, spring? Spring? Yeah. Question mark? Flowers? <laughs> what I'm else? Troubled artist. Troubled artist? I'm very. Uh, it means perfection. Perfection, yeah. Excellent. All right, let's go ahead and click to the third one. Third and final. So, this is actually me um, standing in front of one of those paintings um, in New York City back in 2015. Um, this is actually a, a painting that is posted in the uh, Nevada. The Nevada Museum of Art. We've really upped our upped the ante, guys. So this is the Museum of Modern Art in New York City, and it is the home to some of the most respected and revered modern art in the entire world. And a lot of people consider New York City to even be the place where it was born. So um, it's a very important painting and a very important space. Um, but I specifically wanted to have my picture taken in front of this painting because it had meaning for me. And the reason it had meaning for me is because, as you could probably already tell, my dad spoiled it. Um, this painting is by Jackson Pollock, and he's one of the artists who, who really kicked off um, a new era of, of art um, in, our, in our culture and in our society and around the world. Um, he painted this back in 1950. Um, and this, this painting has meaning for me, and I wanted to have my photo taken in front of it because my dad always told me how amazing Jackson Pollock was and how deep and meaningful his art was. And, and I wanted to be part of that. Um, the reason this painting meant something to me and had meaning for me was because someone who I really loved, loved this painting and loved this artist and gave that to me and who always expressed that to me and took the time to explain to me how special it was and why it was special. And this is actually a lot like the way Jesus' parables speak to us. When we read them, we don't really get the sense that they're like an essay, at least not an essay I've ever read. They're a lot more like paintings. They're a lot more like works of art than they are like essays to be read and analyzed and understood. And when you remove a parable from its context, like when I just throw up a painting without any context of you know who did it, what it was, what it means, um, who said it, when it was said, to whom it was said, what else was said in relation to it, 
what the cultural backdrop was for that parable, it's way more of a struggle to see past the blotches of paint on the canvas and to see a greater meaning. And more than that, parables, like paintings, make a lot more sense when you know the person who is either telling you about them or you know the artists themselves. And I think that's really the heart behind Jesus' own explanation of the purpose of the parables in Mark chapter 4. And Mike shared this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's really important to revisit it because the person's opinion who means the most when it comes to what parables are for is probably Jesus. So it's important to see what he said. So this is coming to us from Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, and you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles or your Bible apps, but I'll just read it really quickly for us right now. When he was alone... The twelve and the others around him asked him, Jesus, about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may never, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, this is actually Jesus quoting the book of Isaiah as well. Um, which is a book of prophecy in the Old Testament. Now, a couple things to point out here. Now, the disciples, so the audience of, you know, to whom Jesus is addressing, they were not always the most stand-up group of people. <laughs> I think we probably all have a, have a sense of that. You've got one who will end up betraying Jesus um, and leading to Jesus' death, which is Judas, of course. And you've got another who will deny knowing Jesus at all when his own personal safety is threatened. And, of course, that's Peter. So it's not like the disciples were better or more righteous or more deserving than the other listeners in Jesus' audience. But the contrast Jesus seems to be making is that there are some people who are already open to the idea of Jesus of Nazareth being the Messiah, the chosen liberator of God's people. And so for those folks who are already open to that idea, who have, quote unquote, received the treasure, the parables to them are reinforcing and informing the kind of king that Jesus will ultimately be. The parables are casting light on the ways that Jesus will operate his emerging kingdom. And they were meant to be understood, not just as an encapsulated moral story, but in the context of everything that Jesus was saying and everything that Jesus was doing on earth. And so the people who are more likely to understand parables are the people who were already familiar with with Jesus' work, who liked it, who agreed with it, and who were, for lack of a better way to put it, were fans. So the people who perhaps were not convinced that Jesus was the Son of God, that he wasn't the Messiah, it it stands to reason that it would be a lot harder for them to see the ways that the parables would reveal how God's kingdom was to operate. There were members of that audience who, as Jesus was even speaking, weren't really trying to understand, not really. They were more preoccupied with trapping Jesus in statements, making him look like a fool, and for some of them, looking for a way to kill him, looking for that justification. Now, I want to be clear about this. It is not impossible for people who don't recognize Jesus as the Son of God to understand parables, right? Um, You know, people can still understand, you know, the general message behind a parable. And we see examples of that in the scriptures. We have people who once were blind, but now they see, they go through a conversion process that we get to see on paper. Um, And we also have people who are hearing those parables And we're able to perceive that Jesus was talking about them. And of course, some perceive that as a threat and use that as justification to kill him. So not only do we see stories within scriptures that show us plenty of people um, in this boat. So the reason we still tell these parables today, why they're still at the top of our minds, is because we don't know who might hear them, 
who might turn toward Jesus and who might be forgiven, period. It's not for us to decide who's in and who's out. It's not for us to say who gets rewarded and who doesn't. And it's not for us to pick and choose who deserves what. And this really elegantly leads us into today's parable, which is about workers in a field. And it's it's one of the parables that Jesus tells um, his disciples. And I want us to take a pause and to read it together now. And again, you're more than welcome to uh, open your Bible and, and read along, or you can open your Bible app and read along. But I'll just go ahead and read it for us right now. And it's going to be found in Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About about five in the afternoon, he went out and found others still standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired at about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last only worked for one hour, they said. And you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who is hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. And that's where that parable ends. So again, like I mentioned, it's really difficult to see these parables for what they are if we're removing them from their context. So let's go ahead and back up a little bit um, into the verses that precede this parable in order to give us a sense of what Jesus is trying to communicate here. So prior to the telling of this parable, and you can find all of this in Matthew 19, so just in the chapter that immediately precedes um, this parable, we see the account of Jesus talking to a rich man. Who's familiar with this particular exchange. Does it sound familiar to anybody? Um, So what we learn about this rich man is that he's interested in discovering what he must do to inherit eternal life. And that, even though he's kept God's commands, like you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. He still, even though he's followed all of these commands and he says, since he was a kid, he still perceives that something is missing. And so what Jesus tells him is to go and sell his possessions and give to the poor, and then he will have treasure in heaven. And if and when he does so, Jesus invites that rich man to follow him. So the rich man, who knows what happens next? What what does the rich man do? He goes away sad, right? He walks away sad. And it's because he's very wealthy. And Jesus says then, and this is probably something that a lot of us have heard before, 
Jesus says, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples were seeing this exchange, and so they're wondering to themselves, well, what, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to get eternal life? We've given up everything to follow you. And so they asked Jesus, what does this mean for us? What are, what are we going to get? And so then Jesus tells his disciples, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. So this is the first instance in which Jesus says this phrase. And then he goes on to tell that parable. So Jesus further illustrates that principle, that many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first, with the parable of the workers in the field. Some of us may get up early and work all day for that reward, and others will only work for an hour and get the very same reward. Some will seem to sacrifice a lot to follow Jesus, and others may not seem, at least in our estimation, to be sacrificing as much. But it all ends the same. So, just so you guys know, <laughs> it was a pretty radical concept for the disciples as well. And to, to just embed ourselves a little bit more into the cultural framework that Jesus is speaking to, I'm going to give you two examples of, of how those words could have landed with the disciples and with the people in Jesus' audience. So the first thing I'm going to tell you about is some early rabbinic law, which has a very fancy name that you don't have to remember today. There will not be a quiz later, but it's called Mishnah. Say Mishnah for me. Mishnah. Mishnah. So it's early rabbinic law. And these were typically civic laws that helped the Jewish people organize their society. So there's a book called Early Rabbinic Civil Law, very creative title, uh, by someone named Chaim Lavin, and, um, and he, he translates one of those laws, and that directly impacts what we're talking about in this parable this way. One who hires artisans, and that could also be, be meant to mean day laborers as well, and they withdrew, their hand is in the inferior position. And if the householder withdrew, his hand is in the inferior position. So in other words, employer and employee are considered equal contracting parties, subject to the same penalties for withdrawal from the contract. If either party withdraws, that party has a weaker legal standing. So all of that to say, the expectation of a non-enslaved day laborer in Jesus' time and culture was to be treated fairly. And there was actual legal relief for a worker who thought their contract had been infringed upon. So just to be clear, the landowner in the parable isn't actually breaking contract, right? He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He just didn't do it in the way that everybody expected. And so the landowner in the parable doesn't technically break his word. So there's no legal recourse for the theoretical workers here. But my point is that these workers would have been accustomed to being paid what was widely accepted as a fair wage for a day's work. And so it was shocking to them that some of these workers got a day's wage for a lot less work. And honestly, that still translates to our context too. Pay gap, anybody? Um, the other thing, I didn't say that. Um, the other thing the disciples, as well as Jesus' greater audience, generally understood 
exquisite. Anytime there's a parable, because also to, to make sure this is, this is known too, parables were actually a really common way that lots of Jewish teachers taught. So rabbis would use parables constantly and they actually still do. Um, so that's, that's a fun fact. Um, but what they generally understood anytime there was a parable about a manager or a landowner in relation to a worker or workers was that it was intended to be an example of how God interacts with Israel specifically. So they had that coding in their mind when they were hearing this parable and they saw themselves as God's chosen people set apart from all others, their expectation. And to them, it was a really reasonable expectation was to receive a greater reward than others because Israel was shown God's favor throughout history. And some thought that they had an even more solid resume because they had, in, in addition to being Jewish, they had a really, they had a really good resume of being faithful to God's laws as they're laid out in the first five books of the Bible, AKA the Pentateuch. And they were also following rabbinic civil laws and mores and that were created to help Israel understand how to build a society in light of God's law. So these are the things that are coded in their brains as they're hearing what Jesus is saying about this landowner and these workers and their pay. He's telling us how God's kingdom operates. And that's one function of, of a type of parable. But he's also, he's also giving some judgment to Israel, right? And that's another thing that you see in parables. You see another type of parables as well, where, where Jesus is exacting you know, a type of judgment on Israel and warning them about judgment. And so Israel is finding itself in this position of judgment because those who thought they ought, those who they thought ought to be first, because they had kept every law from their youth, had never eaten anything unclean and done everything right, they were quite possibly going to be the ones who were last to enter the kingdom of God, if at all. And the table that Israel had enjoyed was being opened up to people they didn't think deserved it. Tax collectors and sinners. And what was God giving as a reward? He wasn't obviously very concerned with what was fair, not in our estimation, but he, but every person received, and this is probably one of the, one of my favorite things about this parable is the phrase, every person received what is right. They received what is right as a reward, not fair, but what is right, a gift of grace from a generous God. And so I want to leave us with a question, um, not to answer here and now. So this is one that you don't have to answer here and now. I'm changing the game on you. Uh, but I just want this to hover over us. And I want us to meditate on this throughout the week. And even as you know, thoughts are popping into our head throughout the week in judgment <laughs> about this person or that person, um, this scenario or that scenario. And it's the question that's asked by the landowner in Jesus' parable. Are you envious because I am generous? I'll say it again. Are you envious because I am generous? Are we comfortable with Jesus' generosity, really? Or do we instead find ourselves grumbling when we see it in motion? Would we prefer Jesus' generosity to end with us in somehow or in some way? Or with, or with the people that we think deserve it? Who are the people to us who deserve God's grace and who are those that don't really? We are here in this church, in this time in history, because there are still workers yet to join us. Maybe some of us have been walking with Jesus for a long time. 
and have been working for a long time and have been suffering for a long time and have been really hurt for a long time. And then there are some who may come through the door tomorrow and receive Jesus and become co-workers with us. Is that something that brings us joy? Does it bring us joy to see our God be generous and to draw all people to himself? We are actually not the gatekeepers or the bouncers at God's table. And that was what Israel got wrong, right? And isn't that what we sometimes get wrong too? We think you got to check all these boxes in order to come to the table. You got to check all these boxes in order to come to Jesus. You got to do it the right way. But Jesus says, come. And in one of his parables, he actually sends his, his workers out into, out into the streets to invite anyone who would come to the table. Because those who were first invited refused to come, refused the generosity. And so he went elsewhere and he found his people as he always promises to do. And so for us, we ought to be the ones who are also running through those streets, looking for those who would come and feast with us, feast on the generosity and the grace of God. May we be those people running with the invitations in our hand barely containing our excitement to see who would come join us. Amen. We hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Kindred Church is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you find value in the ministry of Kindred Church and would like to contribute to our efforts, visit kindredchurchreno.com to donate. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email kindredchurchreno at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.